You're listening to The Melting Podcast, a writing variety show featuring a little of everything from everyone, everywhere. Here we come to make your day. I like that. That's nice. It's true. Yeah, it is. I mean, people were waiting for this. They were. This is epic. We are epic. Who are we? Um, people. Oh, I I didn't realize that. I thought I was an alien. Well, that's arguable. They call me AF Grappin. Take me to your leader. Hi. Oh, God. You don't want to meet our leader. Well, I'm the head chef. No, you don't want to meet our leader. No, I don't. No, you don't. He's an orange potato or something. Anyway, (laughs) welcome to the Melting Podcast. I'm your head chef, AF Grappin. I'm your grill mistress, Erin Kazmark. And I promise we're not actually a political show. No, we're not. We're We're writing balls. We're a writing variety show, and today you get some variety. Well, it's really just one thing. It it is one thing, but it's... So that doesn't really count as variety. They get a variety of voices on it. Ah. Inputs, points of view. Yeah, you're getting a Balticon bonus episode, guys. Tell them about the Balticon bonus episodes. Balticon bonus episodes are content that we have recorded at one of the yearly Balticon conventions. Mm -hmm. Um, Most of what we have right now is from Balticon 51. Mm -hmm. So this was this last May, and it was awesome. So these are panels, interviews, whatever, but this time it's a panel that was recorded at Balticon 51. Enjoy. Bon appétit. Um, does anybody have something right after this where I would need to make sure we end a few minutes early? I okay. do, but it's Thank right you here. For okay. Oh, I don't know where that is. one of mine is in here, too. <laughs> I, I vote that we stay extra time for these people. I yeah. <laughs> All righty. Well, it is four o'clock, so we're going to get started. This is Resistance is Never Futile, um, the role of activism in sci-fi and fantasy. So I am Erin Kazmark. I am the co-host of the Melting Podcast, narrator, voice actor. Um, This is my first time moderating, so this will be a learning experience for everyone, we hope. (laughs) Um, So I'd like everybody to go down and introduce yourself. Who are you? Where can we find you? And um, what claim do you have in the game? Um, I don't know if I have. Is this on? I don't know. Yeah, I don't. I don't know that they're on, and I don't know how to fix it. Okay. <laughs> All right. I'll I'll just put that aside then. Uh, my name is Ted Weber. Um, I have a um, novel out called uh, Sleep State Interrupt that came out um, last fall on C Sharp Press. Um, I'm on this panel because it looked like an interesting panel to be on. I'm a former Baltimore and current Annapolis resident. And is there anything else I should say? Where can we find you? Online? Internet? Um, you can website. find me online and various places. Uh, so this book is on uh, Amazon and all the other outlets and um, some bookstores. And you can find me on Facebook or Twitter Twitter at Save the Reefs and all the information, all that sort of information though is in the program, so you can find all that there, the uh, electronic part of the program. <laughs> Hi, you guys. I'm Fran Wild. I am last year's Compton Crook winner. I um, wrote Updraft for Tor. Thank you. Um, I also wrote Cloudbound, which is the the companion novel to Updraft, and Horizon, which is coming out September 26th from Tor. 
Um, I wrote The Jewel in Her Lapidary, which was nominated for Nebula, is nominated for a Hugo and a Locus Award, um, and is all of these are in the bookstores downstairs. I am a former resident of the Fighting 21231, which otherwise known as Fells Point, um, and lived there for 11 years. We have been resisting since before your boats were born. And um, I'm on this panel because I think probably because I'm loud and <laughs> annoying on Twitter. There's nothing wrong with that. You can find me on Twitter at uh, Fran underscore wild. You can find me on Instagram at Fran underscore wild. I am not annoying on Instagram. I post a lot of puppy pictures on Instagram <laughs> because we have a new puppy who is entirely all about resistance. And um, that's it. That's all I got. All right. Uh, my name is Daya Muhammad. Uh, I actually, I should probably preface that anything said here by me is done in my own capacity as an individual, not as a representative of the government. government. So, I'm just asking what I do during my, my day job. Uh, uh, so I uh, co-authored Baba Ali and the Clockwork Gin, so it's 1880s steampunk set in the Middle East. Uh, I've had several short stories uh, actually come about in several uh, magazines, I think Apex, Daily Science Fiction. Um, my last year has actually mostly been spent working in film um, with the Civil War work actually uh, based around D.C. Um, and and uh, I actually have a, a couple of things. I do have a podcast um, that's actually originally was called Day in Washington. Day is my first name. <laughs> I, I nabbed I that title. <laughs> um, and it originally, it's, uh, originally set up, it actually does legislative analysis, and it breaks down, this is what it really means when someone says this in law. Mm-hmm. Um, outside of that, I actually am a host on uh, IDOB Radio, I think like number five after like, you know, iHeartRadio I and those, um, uh, for Geek Girl Riot. And so I do, I'm a, a host on the radio show. Awesome. All right, well, let's kick it off with um, just the subject of the panel, the role of activism in sci-fi and fantasy. What do you think that role is? It's just whoever wants to chime in first, just go ahead and what is that role? Where do you think it's applicable? You want to start? Um, sure. I mean, I think that um, activism in literature in general has been ongoing for um, almost as long as probably there's been a printing press. And before that, if you look at um, Russian literature, for instance, especially the Russian fantastical literature, there is always subtext. Well, and, and there are arguments that there's no, no such thing as subtext. There is always subtext in Russian literature. And I think, I think that there is always subtext in science fiction and fantasy, too. There is always an ongoing conversation between the, um, the establishment and the rising groups. And when you're talking about politics in your books, if you're talking about um, political change or social entanglements or economic or class issues in your books, you are advocating for people to gather a different perspective. Absolutely. I I would also want to say it's really hard sometimes to address these things in modern contemporary times. Um, And and I'll I'll give a... It's it's not quite a science fiction example, but I think it's a... It's a pop culture example, which is, um, you know, the the, oh, the first ever cover with Captain America shows him punching Hitler. It's a very strong political statement. Yes. And for people who may have seen the online video of uh, Richard Spencer getting punched, he, you know, he, he 
he <laughs> made up the term alt-right. He's, he's an avowed Nazi. A very popular video. But a lot of people, though, are were very uncomfortable with the idea of, like, this guy was, was just talking about his views, and he got punched in the face, and yet this would be a modern Nazi. And what we've seen in fiction is very different from what we deal with in a contemporary world. And so if we want to get people thinking about what might be not quite right, what's uncomfortable, putting it in a science fiction or fantasy setting gives us that freedom to explore without it coming heads up against uh, something that we see today. Now so I know I'm on this easier panel. To swallow then when they see it in a fictional <laughs> setting, they may be able to absorb the it, idea. It's, it's easier yeah, to I get like a that. grasp on our on our own thoughts on that without some of the the noise, I guess. I like that. And it's uh, something that's been around, you know, at least since Robin Hood, the idea of you know, fighting the rich and powerful uh, for the benefit of the poor and uh, powerless. Uh, and uh, so I wrote down some uh, examples uh, of contem- contemporary fiction. So uh, there's, a, you know, V for Vendetta is a great one. Um, Daredevil is one of my favorites. So I brought my Daredevil <laughs> on my head. Uh, and The, the Matrix. Um, Mr. Robot's another one of my favorites. Um, and my, um, let's see. Um, Star Wars, of course, uh, you know, going up against, you know, the evil empire, going up against the empire, um, Hunger Games, um, Avatar, and Avatar is an interesting switch, uh, because, uh, resistance against alien invasions is a common trope in science fiction about, uh, a local population up against a technologically superior invader. Avatar switches that around where we're the technologically superior uh, invader, and it really kind of makes you think about that. Um, and Elysium, and then um, uh, and then my own novel, Sleep State Interrupt. Uh, shameless plug. <laughs> <laughs> I got. I. I mean, I got. I, based on what what Dave was saying, there are some balances in reality where you can play with this. And Twitter allows a lot of writers a lot of room for social commentary. If you follow Chuck Wendig on Twitter, he is very, very vocal about his opinions. I got in trouble for, not trouble, but I, I got some pushback because I tweeted very early. I, when I tweet before coffee, it's it's always funny and never a good idea. But um, I tweeted that... I that, think that the orange one latte. does that also. I, he tweets at 3 o'clock in the morning. Um, but I tweeted really early that one morning that um, Marvel comments would like to announce that the U.S. Congress has always been Hydra, and <laughs> by, by about 12.45, things had boiled over to such a peak that I had to switch off my Twitter for a little while, because my, my, my comments and my mentions were just cascading, but when you talk about comics and we talk about the, the Captain America and all of this other stuff, it's flipping around now, so that you if you don't engage, if you're not... Um, at least aware of what's going on with all of the social media and all of the other things that are constantly happening, you you aren't, it, it feels like you're out of sync with everything. So I think you have to be part of it. You have to be, you know, but, but how you engage is very much a personal choice. And at the same time, I think you have to be very careful about being preachy and writing because uh, it's, I think it's a turnoff if you're too preachy. Uh, but you can still get your ideas across by the way that your um, protagonist acts uh, and the way that they overcome struggles uh, and, you know, are 
up against overwhelming odds and the way that they have their own personal journey that, you know, they need to overcome their own problems so that they can overcome external problems. And these are things that, um, you know, readers can really resonate with on a, you know, like a, a subconscious or emotional level that may be more powerful than just writing, um, you know, like some uh, something in the newspaper, like writing an op-ed in the newspaper. People get that on an intellectual level, but when they dive deep into a character and uh, experience their struggles and relate that struggle against overwhelming odds to things that they see in their own lives and see outside them, uh, it becomes, uh, it can become emotionally very powerful and something that they, something that could inspire them on a, you know, subconscious level. To, yeah, to go with what, what Ted was just saying, um, how do you get a message across without, without coming across as preachy, you know, fire and brimstone and, and what are some of the ways that, that you found that have worked for you to get that out there, to get that message out there without, coming across as, oh, God, here we go again. Well, I think for starters, the story has to be fun and engaging. Um, and, you know, it, your uh, character may be up against, uh, you know, socially relevant things, like uh, my main character, uh, Whaley, is up against this uh, corporation that's basically taking over the Internet and they're using it to control information and they are able to control the political process because they have so much power. And her struggle against them, trying to fight them, uh, has analogs in, in real life. It's sort of an extreme example of what we're facing now. And, you know, what would happen if net neutrality was overturned, you know, which may happen now. It's probably, in fact, it probably will happen now. And, you know, the, right now we're seeing media has woken up because, you know, they've seen Donald Trump and the way Trump manipulated the media and uh, the fact that we live in a one-party country. So some um, media outlets like the New York Times and uh, um, maybe some other, and the Post and some other outlets are starting to wake up and, you know, form a resistance. Um, but what if that wasn't possible? What if there was only... Uh, say, what if there was only, say, Fox News, and that was the only media outlet? Uh, so, uh, I guess, so her struggle against that is something that, you know, can be related to. Okay. I sort of feel like some of the media outlets are, like, resisting on Tuesdays and Thursdays, and then not on like, Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays right now. <laughs> Selective resistance. Um, I think it is, it, it is writing characters who are in the act of resisting um, is, is something that easily plays into plot that gives you a plot so people do that all the time it's like writing um, dystopian novels gives you an immediate setting Um, there are so many ways to write those plots though and so many ways to look at resistance as something that um, can be done hopefully and with, with with great intent and I think I tend to write societies that are on the verge of falling down or falling over or exploding. And, Somewhat but, like our society. But they haven't quite yet. And so when I find characters who 
nece don't necessarily believe that they can resist, I tend to work with those. I like to explore that aspect of things. So The Jewel in Her Lapidary is one of those books that really looks into um, two characters who were raised not to do anything resist. They were raised to conform. They're the youngest of the young you know, royals, and, and they aren't given any power whatsoever. They're supposed to be married off, and yet they're stuck resisting a, a military onslaught by themselves. And so that makes, that makes for an interesting plot. So I don't think that it's just about writing preachy novels. I don't think it's about going on. I think it's about creating scenarios that are believable and realistic where somebody can make change. Right. Absolutely. Oh, I'm, I'm, I'm going to toss a small wrench in there insofar as, 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 as I actually tend to go, if, if, an, if I hear novels preachy, it's either two things. One, it's a crappy novel, right? Yeah, because you read a novel for the storyline. If it's right. preaching, it's a crappy novel. Two, when you hear that, the question is, did the person reading it just not like the message? And so they mm -hmm. felt it was preachy because it, it differed with their viewpoint. Cognitive dissonance. Right. Thank you. <laughs> yes. See, if I'd said that, I would have sounded so much smarter. But <laughs> uh, but I, I think that those, that's kind of the, the way I look at it. it. The expectation is... and. For, for an author, and, I, and it's, it's a hefty one, but I think it's fair, is your job is to write something that engages me, that makes me interested into looking at something. And you can, if, uh, if you can change my view, then that means you, they've done their job. It's not, it's not preaching. Usually preaching means if I can see it, it's not engaging me. That means they didn't write it well, right? So that's, that, so that's kind of my, my feeling on it, because a lot of times you'll get pushback um, and I, I apologize, obviously I do pop culture, so you'll hear more things related to television and television writing, but the most recent commentary I saw just the other day was, oh, this new Star Trek Discovery series, man, I hope they're just not going to make it all about uh, these, like, uh, like advocacy type oh. things, and, and I mean, why, why is it about that? And I'm like, and I love the first comment was, <laughs> first, did you watch the color though? Right, and, and, and so, the first comment he was, "Did you watch the original series?" <laughs> <laughs> the first interracial kiss. I mean, yeah. right. um, but, but but obviously the the response was there, and, and my assumption, obviously because of my views, was that the person responding didn't like the idea of the message. Therefore, they said, "Well, that show's just going is preaching. They're doing it for diversity's sake." Rather than going, no, they're they're actually taking that, ex exploring. They're actually being subversive, and I can't wait to see that, Captain, because she's such an she's I, got an actress no. who has not had a good chance yet. Yes. <laughs> okay. So so he said he didn't like uh, he. I think you said it, yes. He, okay. Didn't want to assume. So he he said he didn't like that. But the, he didn't want it to be that way. So what what would you say to a reader or a viewer of a TV show or a movie who? He says, they don't, I don't want to be accosted by an agenda. I, I, I read for enjoyment. I watch movies for enjoyment, for fluff. I, I, I don't want to be accosted by, by these agendas, by, by these ideals. I, I don't want something that makes me think. What do you, what do you say to those people? Well, that, that's perfectly fine. <laughs> but uh, I wouldn't I would I would say, say I, would, I would work harder on trying to get the message more subtle. <laughs> I'm going to say you're reading a book. <laughs> this is a political act. I mean, this is, you've got, a, a, a book is a revolution in between its covers. Mm -hmm. Now think about it. How many dystopias involve book burning? Uh, Large. Uh, all right. Um, so, so then when, when, you know, obviously you have an agenda in your book, there's something, whether they're fighting the, uh, fighting the man behind the establishment or, you know, trying to fight off a coup, like you've said, or, or anything. How how important do you think it is, you know, when you're trying to get your idea across, to show the other side of it? 
And in showing the other side of it, do you make them a villain? Is it, is it pitting one against the other? This is the everyone's a hero in, of their own story question. Yes. Yeah. yes. I'm, I'm, I, for a while, I believe that. In fact, mm-hmm. I believe that up until November 9th. And... <laughs> I think the orange one considers himself the most important person in the universe. I, but I think that there is a difference between hero and emperor, and I think that there is a difference in, in you know, in 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 awareness of community and self. Um, and if you have a situation where you're not naming names or or political parties or colors of people's skin, but if you are looking towards um, basically a a situation where you've got a novel where you've got, you know, a group of people resisting, your story is only going to get stronger if you, if you deepen it by telling the perspective of the other side in one way or another. I have, I have never regretted looking at the goals and aims and needs and wants of my antagonists. Mm -hmm. If those tend to start to take over the book and they become the protagonist, then I've got to look at myself and my own goals. Yes. Right. I, I would agree with that. I think it's very important uh, to show, you know, what motivates the antagonist, who may or may not be a villain, but is, you know, the the force that opposes the protagonist, um, because you know that's the way. Um, like, not only does it, is it more engaging and, uh, and fair, but it's a way for um, the reader to understand, you know, what drives uh, these people. So, anybody here ever had that racist grandma? We've all had, you know, that other, you know, and, and I, I just like that as a simple example. It's, it's one of those, it's easy, like I said, to think of Captain America punching Hitler and then you punching your grandma. You know, uh, the, or even just saying, well, I disagree. Right. And how hard is it to say that to your grandma? grandma you really, really should should not be, be calling those kids little Negro kids. Sorry, I'm, I was out with my mother-in-law for this, and it was a fun discussion that we had, or a rather unpleasant discussion. And I'm like, Grandma, you see me, you know. This is not something we should... So, but it's... Those are the real life scenarios, and and the thing is, as long if we keep treating them as like hardcore villains, how did she respond? She got real quiet, and we had a lot of silence for the next two hours. <laughs> and she mellowed out a little bit, and I don't think she'll be re- referring that way and ever again in front of me. So, oh, just uh, sorry, it's tough, and I'm sure you guys have had those things. And this was just last week, so I'm still recovering. <laughs> So. so do you think there is a way to present the opposite side without making them the villain? Maybe it's the hero's best friend who just disagrees with them and is not resisting I think you just them. answered your own question. Yes. <laughs> I'm so sorry. Are there any, are there any other Spoilers. <laughs> there you go. But uh, I think the, the, the idea is to make it real. Because when it's real, you understand what the heartache is and how difficult it is to tell someone you really shouldn't say things like that. This is wrong. This is hurtful. Um, and this makes a difference in the culture of the way the world is that you don't like. Um, and and, I, and that's, oh, it's hard to do. But if you do it well, I mean, think about it. Think about those books that tear your heart out. That's how they do it. They let you know how hard it is to do that. We, we love our heroes. We love our underdogs. That's, that's why it's resistance, you know. Um, you know, we're up against the big bads. Um, but I, and it's more than just the big behemoth. It's the, it's the, it's the neighbors. It's the friends. It's the people who, without meaning to support it. I mean, we've talked a lot about politics, but have you ever been in a community meeting, say, talking about, oh, I don't know, parking? 
Um, because that is where you find this very difficult friends, neighbors, people who love each other are about ready to kill somebody over a curb cut. Parking and traffic. Or, or you know, a new bar coming into the neighborhood. I'm, I'm not speaking about any neighborhood. We don't, need any, more, we don't need any more of those yeah. handicapped spots. Right. We need more parking spaces. Right. Or, if not a community meeting, say it's just snowed two and a half feet and you've mm-hmm. spent two hours digging out and you put your chair mm-hmm. down and somebody comes in and parks in your spot. You've got a whole bunch of friction there in a place where nobody's really the twisty mustached villain until they move your chair and then mm. all is off. But, <laughs> but everybody's this, everybody's neighbors, everybody's companions, everybody's friends at that point. And I'm going to get back around to resistance in a second, but, but it is the same thing. We're all part of the same community until there is this dissonance and then we split off. So we have to understand that root, that base where everybody met before all of the parking spaces were dug and, and, the, and the beach chairs were put out. In some cases, you can make common ground with uh, people that have opposing views, but sometimes you can't. Sometimes they're so entrenched. Sometimes they just or, park in your space and you yes. have to, you know, leave a little note. And you have to Or, or sometimes they command an army of stormtroopers and they just want to destroy your planet. Are, are you saying we should resist homeowners association? <laughs> yes. yes I'm you not, should. I would never say that. I would never say just that. Imply. I, just, <laughs> I, I actually will go out and the women say it. Yes. Yeah. So, right, but, so, so you've brought up um, the I, I, small resistance. Yeah. So when you're doing a book or a, a piece or something that is about resistance, is it always fighting the big corporation, or can you still get an agenda across? And it's about the small everyday stuff. I, I think we have someone who has something on this. I actually think that would be a great example. Actually, and, and I, I mentioned my book. I said it's a little steampunk adventure novel, and I said he actually is not going up against a big behemoth at all. The only thing that that I wanted to be important about the character, and this was was one I wanted a character of culture, culture a character of color who represented my culture. So obviously I came in there with that an agenda, and I wanted to have a character of faith. So he is Muslim, and his prayers and how it impacts his attitudes is a part of that story all the way through. Um, other than that, it's a traditional adventure novel. That that's kind of it. It's it's you know it's one of those you remember those old boys adventure novels. Picture that with this steampunk style thing in a, in a different setting and a color and a character of color. That is a simple story. It doesn't have the rest of that, but I would argue the book itself, just by its its presence and its existence, is is talking to people about this is a different culture, this is a different world that does have some real world real world parallels, and it gives an exposure and a view that people wouldn't have otherwise. Um, I, I love the fact that, that a couple of Christian groups picked it up because they're like, hey, here's a character of faith doing good things. We don't care what faith it is. I'm like, okay, I'm good. But, you know, sometimes just by some of the simple choices you make, whether it's, it's, it's character, you know, uh, whether it's related to the character or, the, it, or just the simple way they live back and forth or they talk to someone about it, um, makes a huge difference. Sorry. Anybody else want to add some more on that? Um, I guess, so I would say most of my books um, are do have, you know, high stakes, you know, where the protagonist is up against a government or a big corporation. But a story can be about anything. Um, as long as you have conflict, you have a story, and the conflict can be, 
you know, between any two people or any two entities. There can be, you know, man or human versus nature or nature versus nature or bobblehead versus bobblehead. Or, <laughs> I want to read that. Whatever. That's, hold on. Hold on. Hold on. All right, we'll, we'll do some questions. I've seen a hand up over here for a while. Um, so, in sort of actually going on this thread, um, at the very beginning, you mentioned um, Avatar, the movie, as one of the examples of um, a resistance split where the, the character that looks most like the audience is in some ways the antagonist, and the underdog is the one. So, so everybody wants to resonate with the underdog rather than the evil overlord. But, um, but how much do you all? How do you all walk the balance between external resistance of I am who I am and I'm right, and I'm fighting against this evil external thing versus I am who I am and this is what I want to be or this is what I want my society to be and sometimes I am and sometimes or we are and sometimes we're not. I find that characters who are unsure of what they want to do or where they want to go at first are the more interesting ones or the ones that have to grow during the course of the story to uh, fill that role, that larger role, Um, but don't necessarily start out a hero. And uh, it's something that's really always fascinated me is, you know, what inspires somebody to go out and, um, you know, fight the good fight or, uh, you know, go up against overwhelming odds and, you know, be a hero. Uh, because, you know, uh, if you look at, you know, real life movements, like the people that are out there, doing stuff on the street or a small uh, minority of the population, but something has some combination of factors has caused them to become so passionate that they feel that they have to go out and change things for the better. So uh, that's just something that's, yeah, that's something that's always fascinated me. Um, I want to say real quick about um, Avatar. I guess one thing that kind of disappoints me about that, movie is that uh, the protagonist is uh, a a human who's, you know, in the skin of the aliens rather than the aliens uh, or the, the indigenous people, uh, them being the protagonist. So um, that's kind of a, almost a white man's burden kind of uh, story. But on the other hand, I think that brings up that issue of when you start out Believing one thing, right? Yeah. right? Like that, that, I mean, although we certainly need the stories of a, a straightforward resistance, the part where you have, where, like, I, I, feel, I feel like it's difficult to see real change coming back on the society if there aren't the stories about people admitting they're wrong. The story where the protagonist yeah. changes his mind. Right. And or her mind, or its mind, if it's an yeah. alien. Or... And then if it's a happy ending, then when you're reading it or, or watching it, uh, that um, that successful ending mm-hmm. it can be inspirational. Okay. Got some more questions? But, 
Sorry. They didn't get yeah. a chance to answer. Oh, oh they did. Yeah, yeah, no, sorry. I want to make sure we get more questions. Yeah, no, okay. I'm, I'm right. good with that answer. Okay. Um, well, a couple of things came up in my mind when, when you were speaking uh, um, about the, the seeing the other side as a, as a possible righteous side in its own view. Um, for, for example, The Curse of Shalian by, um, by Lois McMaster-Bruchot, where um, uh, the main character doesn't totally diss the older brother of the, uh, the, that he's going up against the younger brother of. Right. As in, he can see that, that he, he wanted to, yes, he wants power, but he wanted power in order to be able to get things right from his point of view within that, that realm. And so he doesn't necessarily see that person as being evil per se. And so that was interesting. And also Hyperion has so many different viewpoints um, of, of what, what the approach to the good or the bad is in, in that story by Dan Simmons. Um, and then there's another one called uh, uh, Stories, I think it's called Stories from the Fringe, it's the Baba Yaga. And that one has some odd shifts of viewpoint because the the place they come to finally as the the sanctuary is is done completely as a commune. I think it's interesting um, when you have because you, what you're talking about also is resistance settings settings that are set up. Um, it, Saint Petersburg is is a prime example that gets used as a resistance <clears throat> setting a lot. Um, Cat Valenti's Deathless. Um, which is about, about a Yaga tale that is told during World War II in, during the siege. siege. Yeah, and it's, yeah. it's brutal, but it's because the setting, because we know the setting so well, um, is, is part of that, uh, that opportunity to explore resistance from multiple perspectives. And in fact, that made me think of um, Egg and Spoon. Do I have to I haven't read that one. Oh, it's also said in St. Petersburg, but uh, just before the revolution. Um, and so there's, you know, who are the good guys, who are the bad guys? Eh, it's not entirely clear. Um, and I also thought of when you were saying the, about the switching from being the person in the wrong to the person in the right, okay, of uh, The Eternal Champion by Michael Moorcock. Where halfway through the book he says, I'm, I'm fighting for the wrong people here. Oh dear, this is not the good guys. I think um, if you look at the work of someone like China Miegel, who is, is actively on the left and actively resisting um, everything, He's, and he's just come out with a book about the, um, the 1906 October Revolution, which is fascinating. I'm halfway through it. Oh, but okay. he, um, and it's nonfiction. But he, like, if you look at his Bass Lag series, there are um, economics of resistance that are operating within a very totalitarian system. Um, New Corbazon is, is an absolutely you know, dark city, but there are pockets of resistance all the way through. And his, um, in particular, um, his, uh, oh, wow, Jack. The character Jack, who runs along the rooftops, so I'm skipping his name. But there, there are active resistors even within these very dark, oppressive right. regimes. And sometimes it, it also is just who's your POV. I'm actually doing a reread of Handmaid's Tale, yeah. and Offred isn't exactly what you would think of as a resistor mm-hmm. because she does what she is supposed to do. We get her little snarky commentary, um, but 
but she isn't exactly what you'd see as a She's resistor. Not no, no, no. But she is our POV where we get to see a world that we may not like very much. And we get to see what, what are some of the things that made it the way it was and what, what that could mean moving forward. Um, which, and I'll be honest, they actually carried that over really well into the television series. So if you haven't seen it, I would actually recommend it. They stay really close to the book. In some ways, they've done some bits of it better. But that also is because they have the author. as, a, as She signed on it as a, as a co-executive producer, so she actually has a big say in every episode. Got some more? I, I saw Ada back there with her hand up. Yeah. I'm bracing. <laughs> um, I'm still thinking about the question from 10 minutes ago of how many dystopias involve book burdens. Oh. <laughs> you guys, by the way, this is this year's Compton Crook winner, Ada Palmer. Who <laughs> really should come up here if she wants to. <laughs> well, just, I've been going through dystopias in my head and the answer is actually not all that many. Usually the destruction of the past and the destruction of the information. If you look at something like both 1984 and Brave New World, it's being done invisibly. It's That's true, it's a subversion of it. Mm-hmm. Subtly behind mm-hmm. that, it's erasure rather. Yeah, book burning is the active celebration of the presence of the enemy and bringing everyone's attention to it, which is in. He's going to write that down. says they honor. <laughs> you know, I think one of the things that both Orwell and Huxley perceived is that that's less pernicious in a way than having. This invisibly happening where the produce of the world is being erased by rotting away in antique shops and by Winston Smith going into work every day and spending his job deleting information yeah. from things. So I would I would right. love to hear you talk a little bit more about representations of destruction of things as opposed to erasure of things. 1984 mm-hmm. is... Um, it's a lot, what happens there is a lot scarier than just a book burning because they are changing the past, which is what actually happened under Stalin and the, the Soviet Union. And, and what's even scarier than that is that they are changing the language itself uh, so that, that people can't even think um, you know, outside narrow bounds that get narrower and narrower. And that's a pretty frightening prospect. There's a little bit of that going on now. I'm fascinated with that because I'm actually working with a, a textual um, destruction versus erasure question. Um, I think Borges does it. There is, there is um, I, in the general in his labyrinth, there is absolutely some book burning going on. I'm ser- mentally searching through my bookshelves as I talk to you. <laughs> but also, um, Milorad Pavic, who was a Serbian writer, um, does engage it a little bit with that. He talks about um, in some of his essays, not actually in his fiction, though. I think there's one in The Black Envelope, which is a nonfiction dystopia. Yeah. It's a firsthand account of the, um, Roma- of the Romanian uh, uh, totalitarian oppression but written like a dystopia, but it's all nonfiction and really We are being very literal when we talk about the celebration of the destruction of books, though. When you talk about the destruction of statues or the destruction of um, cathedrals or mosques or other things, which can be actively read. I mean, these are buildings that are meant to be read by the people who are inside of them in, in many cases. That becomes another level of that celebration of, of the active celebration of the existence of, of things, which I'm... We have a lot more questions. Yeah. yeah. 
Um, when I think about the um, dystopian book burning, um, I definitely think of 451 degrees Fahrenheit as well as, yeah, as, well as that's a good one because uh, you can't tell me that that town without dancing is not a dystopia. <laughs> but they still have their cars. They can. Uh, they come at a slightly different angle in The Handmaid's Tale, where the women are simply forbidden to learn to read. Right. Are there other works where the censorship is achieved through that kind of restriction? But that's erasure. That's not destruction. Right? I mean, yeah, it, but I think, it's, I think it's yet different from both of the others. I, actually, I would be curious to, to see whether we'll see an increase in like a, a marked increase in the idea of erasure moving forward. If you think about the way technology operates now, the way we, we get and give information versus, I guess, the gleeful book burning. Yeah. Um, I mean, the thought of opening your book and finding that it contains different text is horrifying. Your own uh-huh. book. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's why I don't like e-books. <laughs> <laughs> uh, tying directly into that and a little bit back to uh, the idea that science fiction fantasy in general is sometimes a good way to like to tell about a conflict just divorced enough from the real world context that you can kind of examine the idea but if you divorce it too much it can almost end up being erasure to the point where uh, it, it, it we can I'm sorry it can become lost what it is that you're actually trying to say. And the, the example I'm thinking of is how, let's say in comics, the, the X-Men with mutants as sort of an analog for any sort of persecuted mm-hmm. people. Mm-hmm. But then it kind of becomes this big thing now where all of a sudden the idea of comic books, X-Men fans getting mad that they made Iceman gay and the idea is like, what? I don't want to be preached to in my X-Men comics. Cognitive dissonance. But but that's that's my point in the sense mm-hmm. that because instead of it being stories about real persecuted groups, because they made it about the X-Men, it allowed anyone to imagine themselves as this persecuted group and not the persecutors. I think also there's a there's a friction in in fandom, especially with retcon versus canon issues. And you, when you go in and and say, oh, what? But really, we meant this character is this, and you you do it um, gracefully. There tends to be a little bit more. Um, line given for that others it's okay if you just say well you know and i'm i'm not talking in this particular instance because i actually like i stand and i like i but i'm i'm thinking of dawn i always think of dawn and um from buffy because she just sort of airdropped in and boom you have a sister that sort of thing makes makes for a different kind of message in in that case, you know that was that is Buffy. I'm going to argue, and I'm totally showing my colors here. But it, it, <laughs> I would argue that Buffy is a, is a resistance um, show as well. But it is a hometown community association high school resistance function. Um, and when you drop a new character into that, when you say, "Oh well, she's always been here," and you actively retcon the narrative in in for the process, you get a lot of pushback from the fans. Mm-hmm. I was one of those. <laughs> <laughs> it, it's one of those. I don't know if I would say it's necessarily bad or good because at the end of the day, it brings up more discussion yeah. and more 
more arguments about it, plus and minus. And at the end of the day, we want people to think. Mm-hmm. And we may disagree, but the idea is if the discussion is being had, then we know that something good is happening. Yeah, and these, and, and these people already have these thoughts, um, maybe in the back of their mind, and maybe it um, forces them to think about it and engage with others and uh, have a conversation about it that they might not have had otherwise. That's similar. I've seen other hands before you. I'll get. I love you guys are so active. This is awesome. Yes, this is great. I just wanted to say I think that there's a couple pieces here that matched up, which is the matched up my question, which was I was actually going to ask about the business side of this because there is always that risk of alienating your audience. Marvel has paid for that. ESPN, a sports channel, has paid yeah, for that. That's true. And, and in some ways, the, the the interesting media criticism I've seen of that was the idea of you run a risk of insulting your audience by saying you're the villain when it, it we're supposed to hitting a theme. Going back to the idea of destroying uh, uh, statues, uh, there's probably, I think there'd be some interesting opinions in this room about destroying the, taking down the statues of uh, Confederate war heroes in Louisiana and throwing them in the dump. Oh, That's an interesting Try Richmond, it's closer to home now. Richmond, you have to go with that. Yeah, and so you end up with the idea of, of the theme being more powerful and more persuasive than necessarily the thing. The idea of a media conglomerate is going to appeal, I think, to any side of the spectrum, because neither side likes being out of power. And that, that dynamic there I thought was very interesting. So I was kind of curious for you, from you guys, how do you think is go about not alienating your audience to keep that, that idea of having the broadest group of people reading your book? Because I already want to read your book about your, your, your Muslim hero. I already yeah. want to read that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> What's the name of that book again? Baba Ali and the Clockwork Jinn. Okay. There's some danger in tearing down statues of Confederate um, war heroes uh, because what it does is it uh, it creates a great animosity and entrenches people um, that you know may not have happened before. And the I, I think that the way to approach that sort of thing is to you know like uh, the Civil War is to keep showing um, you know what really happened, the truth. Don't try to erase the other side because I think that that is counterproductive and it's the same tactic that is used you know by totalitarian regimes so I think that I that's something that I wouldn't support I would respectfully disagree okay um, I think that you have a situation where people are holding on to I, I, I'm, I'm having trouble phrasing this correctly. People are holding on so tight to almost, almost idols. They're idolizing a, a message and a meaning that was not even actually related in some cases to what happened. Mm-hmm. And I think that you've got a situation now where things are so heated that in order to I I just would respectfully please take this away from me (laughs) 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 you had your say I'd love to give Jay the chance okay so I I, actually there was a lovely Twitter quote and I was actually I actually agree with the same one okay so so, um, and it was related to the 
to the current president, and, and the idea was, uh, and it was, um, but it was the idea was like, isn't it, isn't it shame? Isn't it goddamn shame that our American history has taught us that the Civil War was a tragedy, but is not willing to t- to show us the 150 years of slavery that is the real tragedy? Mm-hmm. I have a problem with the fact that we are focused on what happened in four years mm-hmm. and we've ignored what has happened since then, or the fact that after that it has taken how many years until the 1960s to have uh, equal rights. Mm-hmm. But we have glamorized this tiny little bit. And yes, people had multiple motivations. But the problem is, this is all we see. We are not seeing the rest of it. We're not glorifying the rest of it. We're not putting up statues to people who resisted then. We're not seeing women have been erased from history as well. Why are we not seeing those? So when we talk about changes in time and bringing back real history, then I think we need to pay attention to all of it, not just the four years. Okay. I actually, I'm going to smile now. I agree with you 100%. That what so I would say case, it was that. Um, should we take down Civil War statues of generals in the North also? I'm not sure that this panel has the scope to address <laughs> that. <laughs> 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 and then, and then, I don't think that's unfair. Yeah, how do you put it? But I, I actually would not disagree with that statement. The idea of statues is supposed to inspire, right? We're talking about inspire, to inform, to educate, to celebrate. Yeah. To celebrate. Yeah. Um, so I think an expansion of what we think of as celebratory would be great. I am I don't know how many statues there are of women versus men, but I'm damn well willing to bet there aren't as very aren't very many. You Unless know. they're naked. Yeah, so what? Is that in uh, Budapest? The revolution and the great worker, whoever's, you can go there. Um, I've been there. Powering in mass. But anyway, talking about erasure, the other part is cultural change. If you, in, in the sense, Barbara Hambly in um, Dragon's Bane sort of has a late Roman Empire, early medieval thing going on where her hero is bemoaning the fact that great works of research and writing and all that basically got used to um, wallpaper the privy to keep the cracks out. Um, And one of the things he's after is to get books is one of his challenges, besides kill the dragon and all that. Purple um, the thing about not alienating your audience is play fair, don't insult the intelligence. I could have handled Dawn on Buffy if it had been a, when we divorced, I got you, Buffy, and your father took Dawn, and we just, you know, and, and, and Buffy's telling her friends, and we don't talk about it, and Dawn shows up because she wants to reestablish contact with her mom. I could have understood that. She was green space energy that was put. <laughs> <laughs> it's not a retcon. It was totally in universe. So you're saying it's lazy writing. 
Yeah, I don't follow. I'm so Marvel. sorry. <laughs> I don't follow all of the Marvel stuff, so I don't know about Iceman. I don't know how they did it. I don't know if it was a, okay, he's gay, flip the switch, or if this is a thing where he's going through a whole bunch of stuff and exploration. It makes a difference as to how it's done. Yeah. I, I, when it comes to alienating readers, I, I think the what occurs to me is like I'm I'm trying to tell a wonderful, engaging story, and I've got the ideas for these characters. If I write them so narrowly that somebody who has none of my experience can connect with it, then then I've done a crappy job as a writer. And so um, alienating someone because of, of more political beliefs or or, or something that that's super strong. I, I, a part of me goes. I get. A part of me goes. I don't want to worry about that too much because then you start worrying about can I meet everybody's need. But instead, if you're trying to go, I want to tell this amazing story and I want to tell it with this kind of character and these kinds of things. If you do it well and you and you get them to see him as a person, you're less likely to alienate. I think alienation comes when you see someone who has written a character so narrow. If I wrote a Muslim character so narrow that you guys go, I have, I have no idea who this person is. I cannot connect with them at all then it means I did a bad job with what I was hoping to do. Um, I have a question about uh, getting your audience to agree with you. If you're writing from a, a villain's point of view versus a hero's point of view. For example, Darth Bane in Star Wars versus, or Darth Vader in Star Wars versus Obi-Wan Kenobi. Who do you think would be more effective in getting your point of view across? Well, well, both both characters can be useful in getting your point across. Um, That's assuming if you even have a you know one rigid point, rather than I I guess there's two strategies. Maybe you're um, you do have a point that you want to get across, or maybe you're just exploring an idea and you want the reader to develop their own opinions. Those are different types of stories, and they you know both have their place, Um, but uh, in either case, you can write uh, from whatever character you want, and um, it could be from the Darth Vader's point of view or um, Luke's point of view, or uh, if it's from both point of views, then it's probably even stronger. I think that one of the problems with writing from the villain's point of view is they are almost an intrinsically unreliable narrator. They they are um, very invested in maintaining whatever their position is and not exploring anything else. So la, they, la, 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 la. A little bit of that and so much monologuing. But <laughs> I think also there is there is a risk of almost gaslighting your readers when you write from a villain's point of view. There are some people that do an exceedingly good job of this. On the other hand, I would argue that um, in into like the lightning, Mycroft. <laughs> see how I did that? Um, is is cast as a societal villain. He is an outcast. He is, and he's also the narrator of the Compton Crook winning to like the lightning, and it available in the bookstores downstairs. And it, it's an interesting exercise in reading this story because you know that Mycroft is hiding things. You know it from the beginning. He tells you he is. And then you get so swept up in his voice and his characters and everything he sees and does that, and you really should read this because it's an extraordinary <laughs> book. This is my job this year is to do this. Um, it, it is fascinating, but it's also super difficult because you want to like the person that you are going to spend 12 hours with. Mm-hmm. And Mycroft is likable, dangerously so. Mm-hmm. Thank you, Ada. 
Uh, Ada Palmer in the back of the room. Yeah, yeah. I may not forgive for that, actually, mm -hmm. just so you know. <laughs> right, I think we've got time for one more. Okay. Uh, going back to uh, what Christiana was saying about uh, the mutant metaphor, uh, as writers, how do you try and tell a story of resistance when maybe your publishers or your editors want to stay more safe? I have never had that experience. I have had editors say, you are being too safe. Please rip this open and go for it. And uh, My book is actually published by an anarchist press. And Controversy sells. <laughs> and what's kind of interesting is, no, I don't, I don't think I've heard play it safe either. I don't know too many people maybe who have, but they haven't talked enough. And I think part of it is is publishers want to see and hear unique voices. They want to see and hear unique situations. They want to, they want something that's really going to capture people. Maybe You're not they, going to capture people by playing safe. And maybe right. they've realized now that in the times we live in, what's going to sell is resistance. Yeah. Yeah. We realize that we've got those voices. Safe is boring. Safe is boring. Yeah. <laughs> All right, we've only got a couple minutes before people need to get to other panels and stuff. Do we have closing statements? Anything else you want to add, say? Naked statues? <laughs> no, I think this was, this, was, this was one of my favorite beginning panels of any con this year. So Yay. thank you, guys. I was afraid that it being the first panel, it would be empty, but it's full, and so thanks for coming. Thank you guys for being an audience who asked questions. You're yes. awesome. Thank you. Right. So keep, keep writing the resistance and keep reading things outside of your comfort zone. And yes. Them. And quoting them. <laughs> quoting them endlessly. Right. Thank you guys so much. You've been awesome. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for moderating. Thank you for moderating. Thank you guys. Thank you for coming prepared and all that. I saw you two years ago in the diversity channel. And when I saw you were on this, I was so excited. Thank you for listening to The Melting Podcast. You can check out our website with submission guidelines and current prompts at themeltingpodcast.com. You can also find us on Twitter at Melting Podcast. Or you can email us themeltingpodcast at gmail.com. The Melting Podcast is released under a Creative Commons, attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license, which means you're free to copy it and share it, as long as you don't change it, don't sell it, and always link back to the website. Sound effects are by the Free Sound Project. And our theme is by Drew Rich Creek. Send us stuff! <laughs>